I was afraid that that I would. Well, the, the real thought was I was afraid that I was going to be worthless to society. Mm. You know, catching a football and and being able to ski does not translate into into most jobs that you would want to apply for uh, or, or or work at. That was our next guest, Jeremy Bloom, who is the only athlete in history to ever ski in the Winter Olympics and also be drafted into the NFL. This conversation is about an hour and it easily could have been 10 if we really got into all of the things that Jeremy has accomplished in his life so far. Because we didn't do that, I'm gonna give you a little bit of his bio because he is a super humble human being. And in the interview, you just don't get the enormity of everything that he's done. Seriously, his Wikipedia reads like that most interesting man in the world commercial. So after listening to the podcast, go check out that page for sure. Hi everyone, I'm Olympic snowboarder Gretchen Blyler. Welcome to the Art of Living Extraordinarily, where I dive deep into the stories of those who have had the courage to blaze their own trails. We learn the deeper motives that drive these individuals, how they face fears, the challenges and obstacles they've faced, how they get through them, and the biggest lessons that they've learned along the way to living their dreams. In freestyle skiing, Bloom at the age of 14 was a national champion. At the age of 19, he was a world champion. From 2002 to 2004, he performed a balancing act with his university schoolwork, college football, the World Cup skiing tour, and going to his first Winter Olympics in 2002. No big deal. One month after being named an All-American football player, he also won a gold medal at the Freestyle World Championships. He set many school records during his two years playing football for the Colorado Buffaloes, but Bloom was unable to continue playing because the NCAA ruled him ineligible, saying his professional endorsement contracts for skiing compromised his amateur status for football. Without the financing he received from sponsors in the skiing world, he wouldn't have been able to afford to compete at the highest level of competition and ultimately achieve his Winter Olympic dreams. So what did he do? He went on to regain his number one in the world skiing ranking in 2005 and competed for the United States for a second time in the 2006 Winter Olympics. Two days after those Olympic Games, he flew to Indianapolis to compete in the NFL scouting combine and focus his attention solely on football. He was drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles and then later went on to also play for the Pittsburgh Steelers. In 2008, Bloom founded the Wish of a Lifetime charity, which he will talk about more in the podcast. In 2010, Bloom became the founder and CEO of the marketing software company Integrate. Today, the company is over 150 people and is a global organization. He also has raised about $42 million for the business. Integrate was named as the best new company at the American Business Awards. Forbes magazine called Bloom one of the 30 most influential people in technology under the age of 30. And in 2013, Bloom was a finalist for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. All of this from a guy who named his book that he wrote, because by the way, he's also an author, Fueled by Failure. Those are some of the things we touch on in this podcast, but according to this Wikipedia page, it doesn't stop there. He got his black belt when he was 12, He's been a Tommy Hilfiger and Abercrombie and Fitch model, and his sister Molly Bloom happened to run the most exclusive high-stakes underground poker game in the world, which you can see in her Oscar-nominated movie called Molly's Game. Who is this guy and who is this family? At 19, after he was already an Olympian and an All-American football player, instead of going on vacation, basking in his glory, falling into the illusion that it would last forever, he was already thinking ahead. And as he looked into the future, he faced a fear. Once all of this was over, was he going to be worthless to society? He knew that catching a football and being able to ski didn't translate into the type of jobs that he wanted to work for. Another fear, perhaps even greater, what if there wasn't another vehicle out there for him to invest his passions and his dreams into, like skiing and football had been for him? It's pretty safe to say that he got it figured out, but that's just a thing with Jeremy, because another incredible quality that he possesses, besides never sitting around and letting life happen to him, is this contentment around the fact that every role he has or ever will play will come to an end, change, or evolve at some point. And he says that he actually loves reinventing himself and starting at the bottom of the mountain again and again. 
So Jeremy may be too busy to have a consistent daily routine, but that is a daily mindset that he lives his life by. Before we hear more from Jeremy, I need to give a shout out to the sponsors who make this possible. Thank you, Alex Supplyco, which is a sustainable lifestyle company I started with my husband. Alex actually was founded when Chris found himself standing over a sink full of smelly, reusable water bottles. Incredibly frustrated because these things are impossible to clean, especially when you put smoothies and lemon water in them like we do. That's when an idea hit him. Let's create a reusable water bottle that opens in the middle so you can actually clean it out. Makes sense, right? Just like that, with one small change, a massive problem was solved. And because we truly believe it's our everyday choices that add up to an extraordinary life, the name Alex stands for Always Live Extraordinarily. Besides Alex Bottle, we've recently released some other new incredible reusable products to help you live sustainably on the journey towards living your extraordinary. And right now, you can get 20% off on your purchase at alexbottle.com with code GRETCHEN. This episode is also sponsored by Dragonfly June Kombucha. Dragonfly June is an organic, effervescent probiotic tea that is absolutely delicious. It's literally my favorite drink right now. My good friend Jacqueline launched this company, and her June is handcrafted in the Aspen Roaring Fork Valley in small batches using high-quality organic ingredients and local Colorado honey. Kombucha is everywhere these days because it's really popular. Most people don't know the difference, though, between June and kombucha, and there is a difference. So here's the difference. Kombucha is made with black tea and sugar, while June, I have to say, might be a little bit better. It's made with green tea and honey, so no cane sugar, and you get all of the health benefits of green tea and honey in addition to the healthy acids and probiotics from the June kombucha. Not only that, but drinking June helps to support your local bee populations and helps to keep our local beekeepers in business. Dragonfly June's flavors are composed of organic, fair trade, and ethically harvested tea, organic herbs, filtered Rocky Mountain water, and local honey. So there is so much intention put into this very delicious drink that is not only good for you, but it's good for the earth. Drink June and be well. Check it out at dragonflyjune.com. June is J-U-N. And if you live in the Aspen Roaring Fork Valley, look for it on the shelves at Natural Grocers, Clark's Market, and local Aspen retail outlets. Now it's time to hear from Jeremy Bloom. All right, Jeremy, we are live. Thank you so much again for taking this time today to talk about your story with us. My pleasure, Gretchen. Um, well, let's get into it. Um, you're, I love your story because you didn't just become a professional athlete. You became a professional athlete in two completely dis different disciplines. Um, so will you kind of just get into what your upbringing was like? Um, it seems you're from a very disciplined, motivated family. Um, but I, I want to know, yeah, what, what your upbringing was like and how were you drawn towards skiing and football? Well, I was born right around the time that the Denver Broncos drafted John Elway. And my dad was a huge Denver Broncos fan. And that carried on to me. So I, you know, I'm a big Denver Broncos fan as well. So I always wanted to be John Elway. And uh, then, you know, on the weekends, we lived about two hours from a ski resort. Grew up in Loveland, Colorado. And we, we grew up skiing uh, about two hours away in Keystone, Colorado. And my family just loved to ski on the weekends. And I, I didn't really think of it as a competitive path until I saw the Olympics when I was 10 years old. And I was so inspired. Um, and, and that's when my Olympic aspiration started. So I told my parents when I was 10 years old that I wanted to dedicate my life to skiing in the Olympics and playing in the NFL. <laughs> and both of them, both of them have a healthy disregard for the impossible. And, and they said that, uh, well, you can do that if, if you put your mind to it and you attack your dreams. Healthy disregard for the impossible. That's a great statement right there. <laughs> and I guess that's also what helped fuel your, <laughs> just your dreams to be able to dream that big. Um, that seems to be a major theme in your story. 
Um, so what was that like going from being 10 years old and saying you wanted to be an Olympic skier and an NFL player to actually making it happen? How, like, where did you even start? You know, it was pretty surreal. Um, you know, looking back now, but, but, you know, as you know, Gretchen, as, as an athlete, you, you kind of, you know, set these goals when, when you're young and, and, uh, you kind of check those boxes off and, you know, it, I, I call it treadmill goal setting because, you know, when I was young, I remember thinking to myself, gosh, if I could just make it to junior nationals, my life would be complete. <laughs> and then, you know, I would make, I made it to junior nationals and, and felt, well, this isn't enough. This was cool, but now I need to make it to nationals. And, you know, after that, it was to make the U.S. ski team. And then after that, it was to make the Olympics and win world championships and those types of things. So, um, you know, it happens over a long period of time. Um, you know, it certainly doesn't happen overnight, but, but yeah, I mean, upon reflection now to think through all the experiences through the NFL and through the Olympics and all the incredible people from coaches to teammates to friends that, that I've made along, along the way, I, I feel incredibly lucky and, and, um, you know, I'm just, I just look back with a great deal of humility. So what were some pivotal moments for you, um, that helped you get there, like get to the Olympics and make the NFL? Um, were they, were piv- some of these pivotal moments, were they the same for football and skiing? Were they totally different? Can you kind of talk us through some, some of those moments? Sure. Yeah. I mean, a big pivotal moment for, for my football career was my senior year. I played at Loveland high school and uh, I didn't have any scholarship offers at the time. And the school I always dreamed about playing for was just up the road in Boulder, Colorado, you know, for the University of Colorado. And uh, as a young child, I went to go watch football games there with uh, my, my best friends who had season tickets. So a pivotal moment was when, you know, Coach Gary Barnett called me, uh, I think it was a Tuesday night in, uh, in Loveland, Colorado, and said, hey, we want to offer you a full-ride scholarship to play football here. And, and uh, you know, it was one of the coolest moments of my life. And it was my, the only scholarship offer that, that I received, and it was from my number one school. And so that was a, a big pivotal moment in, in football. And then, you know, in, in skiing, um, it was a little bit different because I was kind of always thought of as a, as a young prodigy in skiing, and, and I was always thought of as the kid way too small to play football. <laughs> so, you know, the past was slightly different. Um, I made the ski team at the time. I was the youngest ever when I was 15, and and so that path was kind of more clearly defined uh, on how I could potentially get to the Olympics. But, but the football path was, um, I, I had to use more creativity to find the path to, to the NFL. Do you think those two different roles, like sort of being an underdog in football and then being the, the one to always be in skiing, do you think those two different roles helped, helped you in, on both sides? Well, well, certainly the the people who who said that I would never be able to play college football or certainly never get drafted in the NFL that that helped a lot because um, I, I built a very constructive way to to, to use that type of feedback um, and it was really helpful for me. I mean, it really was just additional fuel for for that fire that you need to to train eight hours a day and and to try to do the things that that you think that your competitors you know might not be doing to to get to just just one step ahead of them. So that that helped a lot and then you know i think for me going be, having the ability to go back and forth from football and skiing really helped each other you know mentally the ability to handle a lot of pressure um the ability to 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 learn from a team sport environment and then compete in an individual sport and, and vice versa so mentally i think I, I i grew much stronger because of the two sports um, physically was the biggest challenge because they're, they're just two opposite sports. I mean, skiing with ski boots is just completely different than the muscles that you use um, on a football field. But I think where I gained an advantage was um, through, through just the, the mental ability of being able to, to handle, you know, big events and a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. And, and talk about that discipline. Um, in reading your book, and we've known each other, it seems that 
you have always been a very disciplined human being and you've never been afraid to put in more work than everybody else. Um, where, where do you think yeah. that came from? Well, well, I'm the youngest of three and, and <laughs> I grew up in an environment where my brother and sister would beat me at everything. I mean, literally everything. It didn't, didn't matter. You know, if we were playing tic-tac-toe, I would never win. And so, you know, we, we ran 5Ks growing up. We went hiking. We, we went biking and, and I was always last. And, and so I, I, uh, I built up, um, you know, a, a negative response to losing. And so I think, uh, I think it was because of that, 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 um, I was very disciplined. And I think I learned at a very young age that I would have to do more than my brother and sister if I ever wanted to, to, to win or, or, or beat them. So thanks to my brother, Jordan and my sister, Molly for <laughs> helping to instill that work ethic. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. I grew up with three brothers and I was always <laughs> trying to chase them around, do whatever they were doing and do it just as well. <laughs> so I can absolutely relate to that uh, that concept. What about um, discipline in terms of, you know, I think that the idea that you can always get better, you can always work harder, you can always do more um, to grow and to accelerate and to reach your goals is such a great mindset to have. But on the flip side, um, can sometimes become or can lead to destructive patterns. Did you did you ever experience that in your life, or was it only a positive quality for you? No, I think I think what you highlighted is accurate. I mean, I think if if you're unable to ever appreciate the things that that you have done, and you only ever look to the things that you have not, I don't think it's a you know, it's a very healthy way to live your life. Um, so I think you need a healthy balance. And, and I think that that can be hard for athletes at times because we're so focused on, on the next competition or the next goal or the trophy that we don't have in our trophy case. And it's much easier uh, when you when you retire and you reflect upon, you know, the, the things that, that you did and that you accomplished. But I think more importantly is, is the idea of, of reflecting upon the journey and, and less about the trophy case. You know, when I was winning, you know, world cup gold medals and world championship gold medals and football trophies at, at the time, I thought those trophies were so important. And I dreamed about this day where, where I would have a trophy case that, you know, I would put all those things. And to be honest with you today, they don't mean um, nothing. They don't mean anything to me. It's that I don't even, I'm sure they're scattered around my mom's and dad's house, but, but it, it's it's really the the, the experiences, um, the ups and the downs. I appreciate the events that that I lost. I appreciate the big moments that flipped through my fingers. I I learned much more in in those those times in my life um, than I ever did when I when I won. And I think kind of learning how to use the inevitable moments of setbacks and failures that we all uh, experience, and and learning how to use those moments to recalibrate our compass to success, ultimately, whatever success looks, looks like to us is much more important than, than the hardware that we, we might acquire during, during the good times. Mm -hmm. It's so true. Um, but how did you get there? <laughs> were you always, <laughs> were you always that way? Um, because in the beginning, no, I think no, athletes, not at all. So often yeah, I, we become I, athletes because we have something to prove and we don't feel like we're valuable and we need to achieve these certain things to, to have that self-worth. And then through experience, we get to the place where you were just talking about. But how did you go through that transition? So my singular motivation uh, as, a, as a young, kind of that 10-year-old all the way through up to about 18 or 19 was to win gold medals and win football games. And that, and that's the only thing that mattered. And, and I wanted the attention. I wanted the fame. I wanted to be able to sign my autographs someday. And <clears throat> those are the types of things that, that, that drove me. And I read a book. Uh, it was, I guess it was near 2004, 2005, called The Power of Intention by Wayne Dyer. And, and there was a chapter in this book that said, give up your need to win. And I was like, and my initial reaction was this, 
this guy's a lunatic. Like he, he, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> That's the reason I do everything that I do is to win. And I found myself just coming back and coming back and couldn't escape this idea of like, what, what would it be like to give up my need to win? And what would it feel like to do things out of the ordinary for me, like help my competitors? You know, if I saw something on the course that is maybe a tricky part, go up to my biggest competitor and say, hey, watch out for that because, you know, you might want to take it high. Or just what would it do? And and so I started working on it and I started doing that. And what I, what I found is it completely liberated my ego. And my ego went away and, and, and then thoughts of, oh, I have to beat this person or I have to do this completely went away. And, and I was competing at a much more holistic uh, point and it was it was incredible and and that year was the year that I, I won more consecutive World Cups than than anybody in, in history at the time in freestyle skiing and it wasn't because I wanted to beat Travis Mayer or because I wanted to beat Travis Cabral or the Finns or the Swedes it it was because I, I was so inward focused on progress every single day and that's all that mattered as long as I was getting a little bit better every single day and striving to ski my best run. That's all that mattered. And it was such a fun place to be. Did you ever have moments or are are there any examples you can think of specific examples of a, a moment that tested you where, you know, you had gone from this place of being externally motivated, just focusing on the goal or winning or beating somebody else. And then you transitioned into this place of, you know, it's just about the journey and I'm going to, you know, just make progress. Did you ever have like an event come up that tested that the new path versus the old? No, not really. It it was pretty interesting. It was a huge transformation, you know, in my life uh, when, when I really put that into practice, it wasn't easy at first. You know, it didn't just come overnight. It was something that I probably, you know, worked on for three or four months before it created a habit. Um, And that's certainly not to say that in my life today, there aren't companies out there or other things out there that I say, gosh, I really want to beat them. You know, I mean, I'm I'm human as well, right? And Mm -hmm. and so I certainly have those those thoughts. But I think I, the the, the goals center less around the extrinsic nature of kind of fame, money, winning. And I think they're more in, internally focused on in, in the intrinsic side of, uh, you know, learning and, and personal growth and, and daily growth and daily challenges of, of being able to overcome those. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it really was a pivotal moment in my life when I, you know, after reading that book. That's so, it's so awesome. What about nerves for you? Were you ever a nervous competitor in football and skiing? <sighs> Yeah, no, I, I I definitely had nerves. I, I I definitely had to learn how to control my nerves. Um, you know, there's this performance bell curve that you know kind of shows that at your peak performance, you need some nerves. You you need to be nervous. You need to care, but beyond a certain point, it becomes paralyzing to to your ability to compete. And you know, as, as athletes, as Olympic athletes, we don't get a lot of opportunities to practice competing in the Olympics, right? It's only four years. If you're really super, super, super lucky, you might be able to compete in the Olympics. Um, and if you're really, really lucky, you might be able to get a second chance, you know, and, and compete in, in two, but it's, but it's quite rare. Um, and, you know, so I, I think that can be you know, pretty difficult for uh, Olympic athletes. And I think what, what you see is, is athletes who, um, dream the most and idolize the most and fantasize the most about Olympic gold medals. And it's kind of bigger than life. I think it's harder for those athletes to actually win in those environments than the, than the ones that say, yeah, the Olympics are pretty cool. And, and I would, you know, I'd love to win an Olympic gold medal, but I'm, you know, I'm, it, it, I'm not going to, to, to worship that as a religion. So, so I think finding that balance, you know, between the right amount of pressure on yourself and the, the best in peak performance is really important uh, to athletes because once it goes over a certain, you know, threshold, it becomes it can become paralyzing to be able to compete in that environment. 
Yeah, so true. You, you've got to want it. You've got to have a goal. You've got to want it bad enough to practice every single day. But you can't, you shouldn't want it so much that it becomes your end-all be-all, right? It's such a fine exactly. line that you have to walk. That's exactly right. And so I'm sure that's what helped you being not just a skier, but also being a football player. I mean, I can't even imagine how challenging it was to, to do both, but that had to have helped with that mindset, right? You Because you weren't just consumed with being an Olympic skier. You also wanted to be an NFL football player. <laughs> Yeah, I know that it really did help. In my second Olympics in Torino, I, I competed on a Wednesday, and then I flew to Indianapolis that next Thursday uh, to compete in the uh, in, in the NFL Combine. So, you know, I, I always had that kind of back and forth between football and skiing, which which helped me, um, you know, not you know have one thing to, to to worship about. But you don't. I don't think you necessarily need to have two sports to be able to do that. I you know I work with a lot of you know young Olympic athletes. Um, and, and that's, that's one of my you know biggest sources of feedback is, you know, just what you said, you know, you got to want it enough to, to train harder than the next person, but you, but it's not, it's not your God. It's, it's not your religion. It's, it, it's not going to only define your life. So, you know, go over there to Pyeongchang and, you know, let it loose and have fun and smile, but, but don't go over there and thinking that, you know, this is going to make or break your life. Mm-hmm. On that note, uh, there was a there's a quote in your book that I really loved and could connect to. Uh, Let yourself get in touch with the part of you that truly gets pleasure from what you're doing. Um, this this really rang true for me because in my career, whenever I forgot to have fun, whenever I forgot to enjoy myself and and just simply enjoy the snowboarding, carving on my board and enjoying the crowd and looking around and being grateful for where I was standing at the top of the X Games or the Olympics. Um, when I forgot to look around and enjoy myself, that's when I was too externally motivated. I was focused on winning. I was focused on making the Olympic team. And it's oftentimes when I cut myself off, I cut my full potential off from actually even being able to do those things that I wanted so badly. Um, so what, what did that mean in your own life, you know, connecting back to this pleasure element? Well, I think, you know, as from, from somebody who, who competed uh, alongside you and, and, and followed your career, I think you did that better than most. And I think it was pretty obvious the way you carry yourself and the way you boarded and, and I think, kind of you were the, the, one of the standing examples of people that were, were really just out there having fun and competing at the highest level and being the best in the world. For Thank me, you. it was, but was it was a, a But it was literally something I had to re remember to do. It, it wasn't something yeah, well, that came easily. I had to, it was a choice. That, I mean, I think that's interesting because I would have never predicted that, you know, knowing, knowing you as, as, as well as I do it. And and from afar, uh, albeit, but I, I would have never never guessed it was hard for you. Um, so it was also hard for me, <laughs> and because I was just painfully driven from from a very young age. And you know, I'm, if anybody's seen my sister's movie uh, Molly's Game that, that came out in December, um, that Aaron Sorkin wrote, you know, it, it pretty somewhat accurately describes how how we we grew up. You know, my my dad, who is my biggest hero and best friend he, he wasn't perfectly de described accurately in that movie um i think sorkin needed a protagonist but mm. but it is true that he, you know he very much had the had the uh has that you know oh oh it hurts we'll put some duct tape on it and let's go you know we're oh you don't you're too scared to ski the, the black diamond because you're five years old too bad we're, we're skiing it right. <laughs> you know and so he he taught he taught us at a, at a very young age to to not make excuses, um, to, to figure out how to manifest, you know, what you ultimately want in, in this world. And I think he, you know, he did a great job of it, but, but I think because of that, um, I also sometimes had to remind myself that, you know, I'm still that, you know, when I was playing in the NFL, I'm, I'm still, I, I still have that quality of that, that young child football player that was in the backyard, just loving playing football. 
um, or the same thing in skiing because no matter what you do, whether you're paid to ski, whether you're paid to catch a football, it does become a job mm-hmm. and it can become really un- not, not enjoyable. It can become work, it can become uh, monotonous. It can become something that's the last thing you want to do. And, and I think you're right. You know, you, I think you did a great job of that, reminding you that, hey, this is fun. And I'm really lucky to be able to be a pro snowboarder, a football player, or skier. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's so easy, you know, for people who are listening, it might be hard for someone to listen and say, how could you think skiing or being a pro football player could feel like work? But I think this is true in life no matter what you're doing, right? If you're doing it for a living, if you're doing it as your job, there are things that you have to do every single day that aren't going to feel (laughs) joyful and pleasurable and it can turn it into a a job unless you bring in this sort of uh, this choice of I'm going to enjoy myself I'm going to connect to the reason I chose to do this on purpose and I really do believe it it, it's a choice Um, and in the beginning you know as young athletes you just do it for the love of it but then in life, it, that changes. And I think that's where the difficulty comes in. Or not the difficulty, but realizing that it's up to you. You're the architect of your destiny and you get to do it the way you want. You can hit your head up against a wall every single day and hate what you're doing, or you can be grateful for where you are, how far you've come, and enjoy the little aspects of the things that you do. Yeah, and, and I think you're right, and you know it was even further highlighted to me as as I've you know met and spent time with people who are like pro surfers who who get to go to the coolest destinations in the world and surf, and you know they feel the same way. Or pro, pro golfers, you know, and all they do is play golf, but yeah, it, it becomes a job. So I think I think you're right. You know, no matter how cool your job is. Um, you can get sick of it. It can get old. It can get, you know, not fun. And it's certainly not a, a cry for sympathy because I wouldn't expect anybody to be sympathetic to a pro golfer who's making seven figures a year playing no. golf or a football player or, or, or whatever. Um, but, but it's true. And, and I think it's healthy for other people to, to realize that because, you know, maybe some of your listeners had Olympic aspirations or wanted to be a pro golfer or, you know, whatever the case may be. And maybe they don't like their job right now. Right. So, so maybe normalizing it and saying, well, if you were that, you probably would at some point wouldn't have liked your job either. So yes. you know, maybe that's helpful. I, I think it's so helpful. I think it's so helpful to know that everyone ends up in that place feeling like, I hate what I'm doing, even if it is the most glorified job <laughs> in the world. I think it's important because I think that is the human condition. And it's being able to walk this line between, you know, your goals and your ambitions, but just enjoying the every single day process of doing the thing that you chose to do. Right. Exactly. So talk about, um, I want to talk about the title of your book, uh, Fueled by Failure. I love how in the beginning you just break it down and say, everyone told you not to name it fueled by failure and that people are afraid of the word failure. So why did you choose to, to do it anyway? Yeah, my, my, uh, the publisher entrepreneur press came to me and said, Hey, have you ever thought about writing a book? And, and I said, yeah, I, I have, but I want to write it on failure. And they're like, Oh really? Well, we're not sure we want to publish that book. I said, okay, well no problem. But I think they got, I think they got more comfortable with the, the, the idea because it's universally true to everyone, any human being who's been on this planet long enough will fail, will have an inevitable setback, no matter who you are. I mean, if you consider the, the examples, Walt Disney was, was fired from his first media job for a, quote, lack of imagination. Well, I think he proved that wrong. Um, <laughs> you know, guys like Steve Jobs, who started Apple, he was fired from his own company. And then he started Pixar which is the largest animation studio in the world. And there's guys like Michael Jordan, who was cut twice in, in high school in basketball. So really, truly, no matter who you are, you will, fa- you will face setbacks. You will face uh, f- uh, moments of failure. 
so what's important is that one, we normalize it as humans. Okay. It's going to happen. Um, and two, not, not fear it because if, if you fear it, you'll never reach your true potential because you won't take those risks. And then three, most important is that we learn how to use those moments in our life to make us smarter, to make us more equipped and make us better for, you know, ultimately whatever we want to define success is. So I, I wrote the book, the book under, under that thesis with the goal of saying, hey, I've heard these antidotes my whole life. I want to provide a framework for, for myself, really, and whoever wanted to read this to, to learn how, how to do it like Michael Jordan or do it like Steve Jobs, or, you know, do it like Walt Disney. Yeah. Well, and for anyone who hasn't read it yet, you've got to read it. It's, I really, really enjoyed reading the whole thing through. Um, so many great lessons in there and, um, yeah, I learned a lot. So thanks for writing it. And thanks for naming it Fueled by Failure. I, I feel like in our society, we're afraid to talk about things like failure. We're, we're afraid to talk about things like transition. Um, I think we're so, as a society, you know, this is the, the nation of the American dream. And we're so focused <laughs> on, you know, the, our professions and our accomplishments and our achievements and the first question you ask somebody when you're making small talk is what do you do? And transition is something that <laughs> when you don't know what you're doing <laughs> and you're asked that question, what do you do? It's the worst question in the world. Um, but transition is something I want to get into with you because every single one of us goes through it whether we like it or not, we will go through it many times in our lives. And it's also one of the scariest things out there, I think because we're meant to know what we're doing and have it all figured out. Um, but you're someone who, after reading your book, believes in planting seeds. And it seems like you've been doing this from day one. Um, it seems like your transition maybe wasn't as crazy as some other athletes because from the beginning you're always kind of one step ahead around what's next what am I doing kind of keeping things in perspective so will you talk about your transition how did you know it was time to move on from skiing and then get into football and then how did you know it was time to move on from football and go to business school yeah. So, I mean, it started pretty early for me when I was 19 years old. It was, I think the first trackable moment in my life where I said, gosh, I better start planting seeds. I had just completed my first Olympics. I had ended the year number one ranked skier in the world. And, and I just had ended my football season as a freshman all American at the university of Colorado. And I was kind of at this moment where the two sports that I wanted to do my entire life, I was, was almost at the, the, the peak of, and I was only 19. And I, 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 there was a huge part of me that was incredibly scared about what my life was going to look like after sports. Um, and I started thinking about, gosh, what were you, know, you afraid I of? In a, I was afraid that, that I would, well, the, the real thought was I was afraid that I was going to be worthless to society. Mm. You know, catching a football and, and being able to ski does not translate into, into most jobs that you would want to apply for uh, or, or, or work at. And my biggest fear above that was I had all this, I just have, I'm a passionate person and I love challenges and I love investing in dreams and football and skiing were my vehicles to do so. But when that was over, what if I didn't have a vehicle to invest those dreams and that passion into and what would my life look like? So, you know, it started pretty early for me and, and I you know started planting all kinds of seeds. I started, you know, dabbling in real estate and bought a couple uh, places and turned them over to a corporate leasing company and tried tried that and wrote some business plans for commercial development and um, started business plans for uh, you know some tech companies and all, all along the way of meeting people and then when I was playing for the Philadelphia Eagles I went to um, I took advantage of a program that the NFL has where I, I took MBA classes at, at Wharton and that's really kind of where I you know be, begun to began to build the bridge from but professional how, athletics. How did you, you're still a football player and you're, you're going and you're taking classes at Wharton at the same time. 
it's a, it's an incredible program that the NFL offers. So so you you kind of you know take the classes around your football schedule, and it you know the the bulk of the work happens in the off season. Mm-hmm. And uh, were other players so, doing yeah, it though, I mean, or were you really yeah, the only one? <laughs> no, no, I would say about ten to fifteen percent of the league takes advantage of this, and. You know, you can take MBA classes at Kellogg, Harvard, Stanford, or Wharton, and you know Wharton was in my backyard. So, um, and then you know one of my professors, Peter Lenneman, was uh, just a huge inspiration to me, and and he let me intern with him at his private equity fund uh, after practice. So, you know, he was a re- real important person and kind of you know, helping me uh, eventually redefine myself and, and get into into tech and, and ultimately be a CEO founder. So, but how did you get there? How did you become a CEO and founder of your own company? Um, I mean, that's like a big jump from being a professional athlete, Olympian, NFL player. You go to business school, but then in your book, you talk about some really cool advice that you got around uh, spending other people's money in the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, well, well, Peter. Peter told me two things. Um, the first thing he said is, you have, you know, you have no idea what what you're doing. You're a football skier. Uh, he said, go work for somebody else first. And and I thought that was brilliant advice. And the second thing that you're referencing that you know he said because I wanted to start a tech company while I was still playing. And and he said, keep your money in your bank. And when you want to start a business, go lose somebody else's money first. And mm-hmm. and what he meant by that was you know, go work for a company and, and learn the mistakes under somebody else's payroll. Um, and you know, that was, that was great advice, uh, I think. And, and, and I did that. So I, I first, uh, joined a small startup running customer acquisition marketing. And, you know, my biggest pain point as a marketer wasn't being addressed by software anywhere that I could find. And so after about eight or nine months, I left and, and started integrate which is a SaaS-based marketing software company that, you know, now we're, we're uh, seven years old. Um, and that, that's kind of how I got my start. Um, I gained some pattern recognition working for somebody else and found a challenge that, you know, wasn't being addressed and said, all right, well, here it is. Let's, let's go for it. Right. You, you found a problem in, in the marketplace and you decided to create the solution. That's exactly right. Yeah. So what, is it that you actually do? So, what does yeah, your I business mean, so do, a, and a, what high, do you do? Oh, what the company does, and what I do. Okay. Yeah. At a high level, what, what the company does is is we're software for the enterprise. So we service very large customers like Dell, HP, Cisco, Salesforce, and globally, whenever a new business lead is generated, it gets sent to us before it gets to sent to to a Salesforce or a CRM or a marketing automation. And then our software will basically predict if that lead will close or not. And if they will, at what point in time. So we were really kind of helping salespeople at, at for, for B2B marketers. Um, what I do specifically has evolved over time. You know, in the beginning, obviously, you know, it was just an idea on a whiteboard. So I was wearing uh, every hat and doing um, nearly everything. Uh, today, the company is over 150 people, and you know we're a global organization. And so, I have a great executive team that that focuses primarily on the operations of the business, which frees me up to to think about long-term strategy. You know, thinking about things where where the company needs to be in in 12 to 24 months. Um, I spend a lot of time in industry uh, at industry events and with prospects and fellow CEOs and customers. Uh, and, and also um, a decent amount with uh, with our investors. I've, I've raised about $42 million for the business. So we have a board of directors and, you know, spending time with those guys. Wow. That's truly, truly amazing. There aren't too many examples of athletes who have been able to do what, what you're doing. Um, so what do you think the, the secret to this transition has been for you? Incredible people around me. Uh, I just think I've been so lucky to be able to to meet and 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 have just such incredible friends um, and coaches and and advisors. You know, the first person I ever met in tech, and this was when I was still playing with the Eagles, was a guy named Chad Hurley. Chad Hurley is a co-founder of of YouTube, and 
you know, he, he became a really close friend and of course introduced me to his network, which is basically, you know, the top 1% of tech. And so, you know, where I met John Elway when I was 12 and, you know, got to be around him and just, you know, absorb as much as I could and had incredible coaches. And so I, I think that the biggest thing and, and probably the most important thing anybody can do is, you know, maybe it's not John Elway, maybe it's not Chad Hurley, but there's plenty of people out there who are world-class at whatever industry that, that, you know, you want to get into and, and, and trying to network with those people and trying to say hello and trying to become friends with those people, I think is probably, you know, the, the, the most, most important thing. Um, because and how did you do nobody that? can do this alone. Like nobody, not you know, Steve Jobs didn't do it alone. And Michael Jordan, you know, so you got to have a great supporting cast around you. And what does it take to, I mean, you've, you've met some pretty incredible people who are just leaders in, in business. Um, what did it take for you to network and meet these people? I mean, were you cold calling people? Were you getting yourself to events? <laughs> like, what were you doing? <laughs> well, the, the, the chat situation was just, um, you know, a unique circumstance. I went to Ted Med, which is the, uh, a division of the Ted conferences and just sat down and I happened to sit next, next to Chad. I had no idea who he was and, um, you know, super humble guy. I said, well, what do you do? He said, Oh, I work at YouTube. I said, Oh, that's cool. I love YouTube. You know, this was, this was back 2009 ish. Um, and, and, uh, he was a big Philadelphia Eagles fan. And so I took him for a work. I said, Oh, you want to see, I'll, I'll take you for a workout. You know, let me show, let me show you an Olympic workout. And he, you know, he, he loved that. So we kind of, you know, bond, bonded beyond, you know, just, just being, you know, enthralled by, by the fact that he was a co-founder of YouTube. Um, and, and then others, you know, have been more, per, you know, more focused on, a, on reaching out like via LinkedIn and saying, you know, Hey, this is, this is my goal or this is my, my, my dream. And, you know, would love to, to grab coffee with you and, and pick your brain a little bit. And, you know, that's where my background and your background and, you know, professional athletes ha have a foot up, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes people will take, take those meetings. Um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, I tried to leverage that, um, you know, and my, my background is, you know, as much as I could. But it seems you also are being very uh, courageous. You know, you're putting yourself out there. It, it takes, I mean, I think a lot of people think about networking and immediately, well, some people either love it or they hate it. I think the people who hate it are people who are a little bit more shy. And it seems, you know, your story is all about just, putting yourself out there, going and speaking and meeting people and sitting down at a table by yourself, not knowing anybody and having a conversation. Well, I can, you know, assure any listener who is thinking that, um, that I'm also an introvert. I've taken the Myers-Briggs. I don't, I didn't need to take the Myers-Briggs to know that I'm an I. <laughs> um, my, my dad, who's a, been a clinical psychologist for 40 years always refers to me as a well-compensated in, in introvert because I've kind of been thrown into an extroverted world. Uh, but yeah, to, to those people, I, I get your pain. I, I also have a very hard time going to these events sometimes and saying hello to people. It's not natural to me. Um, it's draining to me. It can be tiring to me at, at some times, but you know, I, I, I think what you said is right. You know, you, ha you have to get out there. You have to say hello to people. You have to be uncomfortable. Those un uncomfortable experiences can can lead to some really incredible relationship, you know, in, in your life. And that's certainly been the case in, in, the, in, in the examples that, that I shared. And have you found the more you put yourself out there, the easier it is to do? No, it's always, it's always, is it yes. always hard? <laughs> oh no. It's still hard for me, uh, Gretchen. It's still, it's still something that I, I, it, 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 I dislike it because it's hard for me. And, and, you know, some, for some people being in a crowded room with people that they don't know and they get to learn about and it's exciting to them and, and they love that. And that, that gives them energy. And those are the, kind of your, your classic, uh, extroverts. And for introverts like me, it's, it's, it's hard. You know, I, I, I don't love talking about the weather, uh, all the time. Like, Oh, it's a, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, nice day outside, huh? And it's like, Oh yeah. It's like uh, those surface level conversations at times, um, are, can, 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 you know, really, you know, be, be, be draining. But I will say that, 
you know, all the research shows that if you're an introvert and you're in a room full of, you know, people that you don't know, if you do find somebody who shares a common interest, something that you're passionate about, those introverts will, will get the same energy boost of an extrovert. And sometimes they'll be, you have a hard time pulling them out of the room mm-hmm. because they can, they can talk so deeply. So it really, you know, kind of comes back to the subjects in which you talk about. And, and, you know, you mentioned earlier, it's like the first thing we say is, well, what do you do? And maybe the first thing that we say, we should say is, what are you passionate about? Or, you know, yes. what do you love? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Do you do that? Do you ever ask that? Oh, yeah. I never ask, what do you do? Uh, it's just not something I ever ask. Yeah, me neither, just because I hate that question. <laughs> I don't want anyone asking me that question. Because it also can become complex when you don't do one thing. Um, so it's yeah. such a, a linear question to begin with. So what about yeah, your nonprofit? It's particularly hard for... Oh, sorry, yeah, uh, continue on. The nonprofit. Um, sorry, it, I didn't it, mean it to cut you pers- off. Yeah, no worries. I, I think it can be particularly hard for professional athletes. Um, who who are trying to transition? I think we can probably agree that the worst question is, so what do you do now? Especially if we haven't figured that out yet. Mm-hmm. That, that that can be a really, really um, you know pressure packed question. Yeah, or just anyone in general. If you're making a big life change and transitioning careers, or um, the what do you do now is very. It's such a loaded one. Yeah, exactly. So what inspired you to also create uh, Wish of a Lifetime, your nonprofit? Yeah, so Wish of a Lifetime, what we do is is we grant lifelong wishes to the, the oldest adults in the world. So we're, we're granting wishes to 80, 90, and 100-year-old people. And really what, what the inspiration was behind it was just my relationship with my grandparents. My grand, my grandfather flew 17 missions over Berlin in World War II, and he was my first ski instructor, and he was just one of my most favorite human beings on earth. And same with my grandmother on the other side. She lived with us growing up. So for the first 19 years of my life, I didn't have to go far to hang with my gram. Like, I just went downstairs, and I would go downstairs every day. And, you know, I just feel like in, in our society and in, in, in our culture, sometimes we, we don't recognize the, uh, the eldest generation. We don't, we don't say thank you enough. We don't tell them that we think that they're still important. And, um, you know, we're focused on, on other things. And so Wish of a Lifetime is, is really a reminder uh, for them that they matter and that their dreams matter and that their wishes matter. And so we, we get to knock on their door and say, hey, what's that one thing you've always wanted to do? And let's go do it. That's so amazing. And when did you start this? We're 10 years old. So, yep, this is our 10th anniversary. And so what's your time frame here between skiing, football, Wharton's, interning, nonprofit, starting your, starting your company? When did this fall in? Yeah, started Wish of a Lifetime first in 2008 when I was still with the Pittsburgh Steelers. That was kind of my first venture um, into the world outside of professional athletics. And and um, it was right around the time, actually, I had just uh, finished uh, the, the Wharton program. And, um, and then I started Integrate uh, in 2010. So two years after starting Wish of a Lifetime is when I started Integrate. Wow. So you're an author, you're an entrepreneur, you have your own foundation, um, you're in a relationship, um, you need so much space to be creative and write and deal with fires that come up in the business and set time aside for the foundation. Um, How do you balance your days? I I mean, it seems like you've had a lot of practice because you've been balancing a lot of things for most of your life but um break down like do you have a daily routine do you have a consistent practice or practices that you do every day to help you mm. live the life that you're living i dream about that i dream about <laughs> having a daily practice <laughs> that's a great answer <laughs> <laughs> 
I do. I often think about how how interesting that would be. Um, <laughs> but but no, I, that's that's just not. I, I I it's not nothing that I do is really consistent. And and I and I think the the way I would answer that is is I guess two ways that that I balance the various things going on in my life and that you know I le- tried to learn at a, at a young age through football and skiing is. The first, I don't really believe in, in the term work-life balance. Um, I just think that if you're trying to balance things all the time, it you know things fall through. But I really believe in work-life integration and, and integrating all these various pieces in a more prescriptive way, in a more thoughtful way. Um, so that's the first thing that, that, that I really tr- have tried to do is be more thoughtful of, of how these pieces can integrate with each other. And then the other, the other thing is... Um, I lose a lot of the details. I, I can't be too detail oriented about all the things that, that I do. Otherwise I really wouldn't, wouldn't have enough, enough time. So it's this entrepreneurial idea that, you know, jump out of the, the airplane and, the par- and, and assemble the parachute on the way down um, and, you know, get comfortable with that. So I don't really look at my schedule next week. I know it'll be here. I know my, what I have to do will be on my calendar and but in you know in some rare cases I'll look for it but but really more I'm just kind of high level operating um, against the, the the various tasks on my plate that day. Mm-hmm. And what about like do you set set time aside? Or do you still work out a lot? Yeah, that's that's the one thing that I do do. I ask my executive admin to to create a meeting notice on my schedule, wherever I am, whatever day it is, for at least. At least thirty minutes, love an hour, but but at least thirty minutes where um, I have enough travel time to get to wherever gym that I'm going, and I have enough um, time to get back and take a shower or whatever the case may be before a phone call or a, um, a meeting, um, because you know there's there's nothing more important than than our health. If we don't have our health, then then we you know we don't really have we uh, we could lose life, right? So. Um, there's, there's, there's nothing, there's not a bigger priority, you know, in my life than, than, uh, you know, taking, trying to take care, uh, of myself, um, so that I can be healthy when I see my family and friends and all those types of things. What does that look like for you now? What does a workout look like for you? <laughs> it can take on many different shapes and sizes. <laughs> kind of depends on which, which country I'm in, but um, you know, if, I, I guess the, the standard one would be, uh, you know, a lot of plyometrics, not a ton of heavy, heavy lifting. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be an explosive athlete anymore. I'm really just trying to, to stay in good shape and take care of, um, of my, my joints and, and my muscles. So a lot of it's, you know, resistance training and low impact training. So it doesn't take a huge toll uh, on, on my body. Uh, I'll do a hot yoga class. It's a great way for me to kind of turn off the phone and get away from the daily tasks and just take an hour to to, to sweat and do things that I'm, I'm not used to doing. Um, and it's really at those times when I find myself the most creative, coming up with ideas for the company or the nonprofit or the various things that, that I have going on is when I can kind of shut down the brain a little bit. It's such a good point um, because I can find in my life I'm not someone who has to work out all the time. There are a lot of people out there who are that way. I, I could easily just stop working out. But I've found that exactly what you said, when I think that I don't have time to, to go get exercise and breathe outside, um, that's when I really need to just go do it uh, because I've gotten stuck in yeah. you know, the tunnel vision and I'm too busy and there's too much to do. Um, and when you actually make time to work out, or for me, I, I do meditate, I have a meditation practice, that's, those things give me more time in my day, actually. I think it opens up the field of vision, you get more creative, you get more efficient. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I also just want to also say that I, there, there are times where I, 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 the last thing I want to do is work out. I'm yeah. also not one of those people that I could also sit on the couch for those 30 minutes and be perfectly happy. And it's a struggle. It's a struggle for, for, for me. Um, and I think most of us, uh, but I'll tell you one thing, you know, spending a decade at wish of a lifetime and, 
and meeting centenarians and people into their 90s who are healthy and, and articulate. And I'm always fascinated by, you know, what's the secret to life? What's the secret to health? And, and by far, by far, with the people that are the healthiest in the 80s and 90s and 100s, the, the, the common response is never stop moving. Take that walk, read that book, and be engaged in life. You know, life is going to you know get you to a point where it's going to make you feel want to feel comfortable and not do those things. And their advice to me has always been, never stop moving. Oh, that's huge! Thank you for sharing that with us. It's so true. It's so simple, but it's the hardest <laughs> thing to follow. It can be, yeah. It really can. It can be very difficult to do. Because our mind likes to tell us otherwise. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you you mentioned you just mentioned uh, the difference between work life balance and work. Did you call it work life in, integration? Life integration. Yeah. Um, work life integration. Yeah. Work life integration. Have you found? a common purpose within all of your endeavors that has been at the heart of everything you've ever done? Like a purpose mm. that never changes, like the goals change, the vehicle changes, but the purpose remains the same. Yeah. The, the, the singular purpose for me right now is, is personal growth. Uh, and, and to, uh, the goal is to remain intellectually curious my entire life. Mm. And I think if, if I can accomplish that, uh, you know, that will lead me into other starting other businesses in completely different categories. Um, you know, spending seven years in, in, in marketing tech has been fascinating and I've learned so much and I've met so many great people and I'm much more equipped now to, to, to start a business and be a CEO and run a company. Um, but I'm sure it'll lead me to a completely different path you know, after integrate in, into something, into something next. And I love the idea. I remember thinking when I retired from sports, I want to completely redefine myself. Like that was the thing that I kept coming back to. I wasn't afraid to start at the bottom of a mountain again. You know, like I was a 10 year old that didn't even make the regional ski day and climbing that mountain. And, and that I, that the art of reinventing oneself um, is something that I think is a great way to spend your life, you know, never getting too comfortable and saying, all right, well, this is what's going to define for the rest of my life. I think the, the art of redefining and the art of transition, and even though it can be so scary at times, um, and it can be difficult to know where to go and how to do it and learning all these things again, and it's like learning a new language. Um, but yeah, that, that would be for me, that, that's, that would be my common purpose. I love it. Okay, just a few more questions. Um, I think at one point I saw a description on your Instagram that said, uh, not CEOs, you know, world champion, NFLer, but <laughs> I'm Molly Bloom's brother. <laughs> I loved, I loved to see that. Um, how has it been seeing your sister? come out with her incredible story and uh, her book and the movie this past year. And for any of you who, who don't know, Jeremy Bloom's sister is Molly Bloom. And her book and the film are called Molly's Story. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's called Molly's Game. Molly's and, Game. You know, my Thanks. sister, well, I'm so proud of her. Um, I'm so incredibly proud of her because she really manifested this whole thing. It didn't come easy. It's not like all of the Hollywood studios were coming to her once they found out her story. I and mean, she created this entire thing um, out of the intelligence and entrepreneurial nature of herself. So I'm, I'm super proud of her for that. Um, but yeah, my, my sister's story is pretty remarkable. You know, she graduated from the University of Colorado and her path was law school. She got into a number of really good law schools, but she decided to take a year off and she moved to Los Angeles and she, she networked with a lot of really interesting people. And, um, her boss was running a kind of a small poker game in, in the basement of one of the clubs. And, you know, she, she asked if she could take it over and turn it into something. And 
that's what she did over 10 years. She built the largest underground poker game in American history. And, you know, guys like Leonardo DiCaprio and Ben Affleck and some of just the most, you know, famous people in the world were playing in her games. And then the FBI raided it, um, I guess, you know, about three or four years ago um, for a number of different reasons and federally indicted my sister. And she had to, you know, go through this long drawn out legal battle with the United States and, it, you know, really fascinating story. Um, and she's lived quite a life and I'm happy that the, the, the book did well. And, and, uh, you know, to have Aaron Sorkin write, write your life's movie is a, <laughs> it was a pretty cool thing. Right. It was so cool to see her, um, you know, at the Oscars last night. It, that must <laughs> yeah. be such a trip for you. Yeah, I mean, to, the fact that, you know, her movie was, was up for uh, an Oscar last night for Best Adapted Screenplay is is even more special because it really relates to the book that she, she wrote. So, you know, and, and the content that she created. So my, my sister is, is an Oscar-nominated writer uh, along with Aaron Sorkin. And, you know, that's, that's something that she can keep in her trophy case yeah. <laughs> for the rest of her life. Well, and I was reading uh, a couple interviews from her and a big part of one of the interviews I read was a lot uh, like what you talk about in your book and like we've talked about today, um, you know, going from being externally motivated to intrinsically motivated. Um, and, you know, just where she was in her life before and where she is now and what she's learned along the way that it seems to be a huge theme for her as well. Yeah, and she she inspires me in so many ways. She she's found such a a grounded place right now to to live her life. And even though you know her world has completely changed around her, given the success and and the notoriety of the movie in the book, um, she's not extrinsically motivated, and she's she's coming from such a healthy place, and mm -hmm. she's in such a good place in her life, and she's she's doing great. Awesome. So what is your definition of success after all that you've been through so far in your, your young life? Yeah, I mean, my, my definition of success is to, to never stop moving and to never stop learning. You know, and I think if you can do those two, two things and, 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 and you can, you know, maybe help a few people along the way and, and uh, tell your friends and family how much they mean to you and, and, and how much you love them, I, I think that that is a life well lived. I love it. And last question, what wisdom do you know now that you wish you could turn around and tell younger Jeremy Bloom? <laughs> I, would, I would tell younger Jeremy Bloom that uh, there is no doubt that the world is unfolding as it should. And there was just too many times in my past that past that I, you know, resisted whatever was going on and drove myself a little bit too crazy and stressed out a little bit too much. And, you know, I would, I would tell that young kid to take a deep breath, smile, keep working hard, keep attacking your dreams. But there's no doubt the world is unfolding as it should. That was the art of living extraordinarily defined by Jeremy Bloom. If you want to follow Jeremy, check him out on Instagram and Facebook. He's Jeremy Bloom. And on Twitter, he's JeremyBloom11. Check out his company at integrate.com. And his nonprofit is wishofalifetime.org. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe and give us a rating. And I always love reading your comments too. So please let me know your feedback and what you want to hear more of. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.